my name's Rosie. And I'm Loreen. And this is What If, the show that examines life's what if moments. I guess it's all about those times when you find yourself at a crossroads and you have to decide what path you're going to take. Yeah, and for every path you choose, there's one or two that you might have decided to leave behind. And how does this change and affect your life? Yeah, because we've all had those moments, haven't we? Well, in this podcast, we'll be walking that unbeaten path with an incredible lineup of celebrity guests asking them that all important question what if? Hi, welcome to our podcast. I'm so delighted that we're talking to Beverly Knight, one of our, well, one of Britain's greatest soul singers and a fantastic live performer. Hugely successful recording career as well as starring in the West End. It is so good to see you. Hello. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Beverly, it's lovely to see you. It really is. Thank and I just you. wondered what would have happened? What if you hadn't had that childhood that was surrounded by music? Because you were sort of steeped in it, weren't you, as a, as a very young child? Yes, as a very, very young child. My mum always proudly tells me that her grandma, my great-grandma McLean, was a multi-instrumentalist and a singer in her church. And, you know, such was her reputation that kind of parish of Jamaica, St Elizabeth, where where she was from and where my both my parents are from. You know, she was known in that area. You know, that woman with the played her accord, accordion. How, mm. how quiet is the accordion? <laughs> Play her accordion and man, she could sing. And so music has just been omnipresent. Yeah. It's always been there. My dad doesn't come from a musical family, but my dad could sing too. So, you know, I had dad singing in one ear and mum in the other and we go to church and the singing's there and then you bring it home and then we go to visit the family. My cousins all sang, my uncle sang. It Just music. Everything was music. And not that I took it for granted because every time... I heard it or I sang for myself. It was always that joy. But I just assumed that was everybody's situation. And yeah, everybody had that music all the time. Because we, we had a thing in Glasgow, and I'm sure it's kind of similar to what you had, that when you went to parties, to family parties, yeah. everybody had to do a turn. Yeah. And there's something really good about that in a way. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it, was actually, it was actually a lovely way to, because if you did have a talent, it was your way to get better. Absolutely right. And it's funny because we're always taught, you know, here in Britain, you know, oh, don't show off or stop showing Mm. off. That thing that we tell kids, stop showing off. And actually, no, show us, show us what you've done. Show us what you've created. Show us your, your, your talent because there's so much connected to that element of performance. It's so freeing. It's so... Well, it informs other areas for a start. You know, if you are an expressive kind of child and you're able to express yourself, you know, in the performance arts way, often it spills over into your academic life and other mm-hmm. areas of your life, you know, speaking or whatever. But yeah, that whole thing of of, of performing for, <laughs> you know, the guests at a party. Oh, yeah, oh, God. And I had no shame. I had <laughs> no shame. You didn't have to ask me to do anything. Oh, come on, Beverly. Beverly's... Oh, she can do a really good Margaret Thatcher. And there I'd be, little five-year-old me doing my best Margaret Thatcher. I just, I never even thought about it. The idea of performance, and especially singing, had no fear whatsoever for me. Just none. It was as natural as breath. 
Yeah. Mm. yeah. And sort of, I suppose, in that environment, you know, it's been nurtured as well. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And you got to add in then the church as well, because I went to the kind of church where if you had a talent, you used it for the Lord. You okay. you, you were not going to sit on that talent and hide it away somewhere. They were going to find it and they were going to use it and they were mm. going to put you to good use. So it would be, you'd be sat in the congregation, Sunday morning worship service, and Sister Beverly is going to come and, and minister for us in song. You'd be like, am I? <laughs> I guess I am then. Uh, and then you're walking up to the pulpit like, what am I going to sing? What am I going to sing? Because you haven't prepared. They've decided you're going to sing because they know you can. So, well, off you go then. And then, you know, you'd kind of give a, a little speech before you sang to kind of blag the fact that you haven't got a clue what you're going <laughs> to sing. Thinking, it's going to come to me, it's going to come to me. And then a hymn would drop into your mind or something And in the kind of church that I grew up with, you would start to sing. And hopefully if you sang well, whoever was on keyboard or on guitar would find where you are key wise. And then you would just work your way through it together and the rest of the musicians would join in and off you'd go. It was a very organic way of making music. And that's how I grew up. And everyone I know who's grown up in that kind of evangelical church environment, we've all grown up the same way. So music and being in front of people and finding your way with a congregation in front of you, staring at you like, don't mess up. This is for Jesus. Don't mess up. You know, no pressure. No pressure. It's only Jesus watching. You know what I mean? Your, your, your soul depends on this. You just grow up without that fear because you've done it for Jesus. <laughs> what other pressure is there? Exactly. <laughs> and you were dead interested in um, other music, weren't you, about Beverly listening to other music as well? Yeah. yeah, if there was any other music that you were listening to at that time that you wanted to, to do, because I don't know if, mm. did you because of that, did that make you decide music's what I'm going to do? Yeah, Um I think I knew, I didn't verbalise it until I was maybe about nine or ten, but it was obvious. It was so obvious that I was going to sing and perform, you know, for the rest of my life in some capacity. But I was determined I was going to do it professionally, like mm. those people on the telly, you know. Mm. <laughs> that that was my whole thing. I was determined I was going to do it. I got a clue. Living in Wolverhampton, you know, just going to a normal school. I didn't know anything about stage school or any of that kind of stuff. I just went to a regular school. Mm. Thank God I went to a school where they really did care and they, on top of church and the family, nurtured me and helped to develop me. Um, But getting back to other kinds of music, oh, Mm. I nicked the radio out of mum and dad's room all the time, all the time, because me and my sister shared a bedroom and then dad built the extension on the house and then my sister got her own room and then I got the old room. I was like, yes, my (laughs) own room. So I was always taking the radio and I just immersed myself in everything that was being played because, of course, radio, when you think of it now and you think back then, radio was actually quite limited in the amount of choice you had, you know, mm. the different channels. You think of it now, you've got hundreds of digital channels and, you know, FM, AM, medium wave. I mean, back then it was medium wave and AM and then FM came in. And it's, oh, FM, <laughs> it is, <not> clearly. <laughs> 
and you know, and but it was it was pretty limited. So all the radio stations in the country played pretty much everything or a selection of every kind of music. So you'd have Bowie playing next to disco, playing next to whatever, I don't know, Bay City Rollers, <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne, you know. I mean, and everything had an impact. So I grew up learning that music was either moving me or I just thought, nah, I don't like it. But I, <laughs> you know, there's good stuff and there's not mm. so good stuff. Mm. And um, in my early mind, I didn't differentiate between, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I only listen to this kind of music, but I don't listen to that. I mm. listen to everything and try to glean what I could from everything. I and did you get in trouble from stealing the radio and... Oh, yeah. Listening to all this different music. <laughs> oh, uh, absolutely. Because, you know, mum and dad would want to put on the radio in the morning mm. while dad was getting himself ready to go off to work. And where's the radio? Oh, it's in my room because mm. I've nicked it. Okay. <laughs> you know, and now I'd nicked it because I'd always wanted to listen to what the charts were. And of course, that was a big, 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 massive, massive, massive deal back in the day, listening to the charts, especially on the radio, because it came at the end of the week. And then Top of the Pops was like Thursday or Friday. But the actual official Top 40 rundown was always on the Sunday at the end of the week. So I had to have that radio because I had to know. My life depended on it. <laughs> no. So yeah, I got into grief. <laughs> but it was worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I read that you had a recording contract and you did, you said no. So what happened was, when I was very, 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 very young, like 13, mm. there were overtures made to me by my cousin's friend who was looking after him as in a managerial way, um, who went on and then discovered people like um, the Sugar Babes and that. So oh, he did great. And All Saints, you know, years, years, <laughs> years later. I uh, see so he had the ears for A&R and management. And um, he heard me sing when I make my little annual trip down to London, the, you know, coming down from the industrial Midlands to the fashionable capital to go and see my fashionable cousin. And he was already kind of moving in those circles. And and they heard me sing and, um, you know, oh, would you be interested in music and having a career in music? And oh, I was 13. I knew nothing. But I knew enough to say I'm nowhere near ready and I don't know anything about it. But one day that's what I want to do. So that was that. And then fast forward when I got to age 19, I was singing in a club back home, Wolverhampton, and I was approached by an A&R guy. Um, artist and repertoire, in case people yeah, yeah. are listening, okay. like, mm. have no idea what that means. <laughs> so the guy that scouts the talent, or used to, way back in the day, scout the talent and then help to develop the talent before you released anything. Mm -hmm. Artist and repertoire. So um, this guy saw me sing at a party in Wolverhampton and he was accompanying the artist who I was warming up for and um, said I'd be really interested in offering you a contract I'd like you to come to London let's talk about it and I said well I'm going off to do my degree so wow. if you think I am good and I think I'm good what I really said that mm. um you'll wait he waited wow so I signed the deal when I was 21 in my final year of uni 
God, that's extraordinary to yeah. have that that belief in yourself, that that confidence in a way. Was it that? Do you think? Did, yeah, 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 it was. It was that I just I felt as though it had been written in some book chart, something <laughs> somewhere that this was what Beverly was going to do. Mm. This was why she was born, and that's it. Were you, were you desperate to go to uni? Is that why you just... I really wanted to go to yeah. uni because I'd grafted through school. Yeah. And I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a nerd. I am oh, a nerd. okay. I, nerds are good. We like nerds. You're in I, very good company. Yeah, I'm <laughs> excellent. I'm, I'm bookish. Mm-hmm. You know, and I looked like a nerd. As I had the glasses and I looked studious. <laughs> I had to fulfil that part of me. I still have that to this very day, you know, especially history and politics and religion. Religion's what I went on to do for my degree. I couldn't let it alone. And the other important factor about my degree was I had a mum and dad who had come from Jamaica Mm -hmm. to this country, sacrificed so much to make sure I had the life that I had and I would be the first of my family to go to uni and if I didn't go, you know, break their hearts. Mm. So, I hear you. I hear you. Know you. What I mean? Exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly the same. I, yeah. I didn't go, but I knew that coming up hot in my heels was my little brother who's yeah. a bit of a genius. So my mum got the photo you know the photograph that yeah. you have to have on the mantelpiece with your scroll under your oh, arm and your yeah. Which is a fake scroll. <laughs> yeah, it's well, a fake, for me it was a fake yeah, scroll. Anyway. Mine was a fake scroll yeah. too. Mine was just a Bit of paper, up. just mm. the whatever. Oh no! I know. <laughs> Fake news. But yeah, it's it's something very important. I completely get that. Yeah, I really, really do. Absolutely get that. And you wonder, you know, sort of, what if you hadn't gone to university? Would it have made that much difference? No, because he waited. He waited. He waited, mm. he waited and you know. And the funny thing is, I signed that deal. It wasn't even a few months later. It was a few weeks later. Mark Sher went off to do music publishing. So he didn't stay in, in the recorded industry side. He stayed in the publishing. He went off and did the publishing side. So here I was in this deal with people who I was like, OK, well, I've, I've got to make some new friends here. Mm. You know, my one person who I knew has gone. And But um, that that first deal that I had was so great because... I hit the ground running and suddenly I had an underground hit single with my first record, Flavour of the Old School. And then I haven't stopped since that day. No, you mm. haven't. You no. absolutely haven't. You have never stopped <laughs> no. working. You're an absolute grafter. Exactly. And the thing about you as well, Beverly, is you write your own material. And that's really important. You know, I know you can do songs, other people's songs, but yeah, when yeah. you do your songs... yeah. There's something very special about that. There is. Singing your own experience Mm. and or maybe not even your own experience, but singing about the experiences of things that matter to you. So often I will write things that have happened to me, but then I'll take things that have happened to my friends, um, you know, so I've lived through kind of vicariously. And then I'll take that as an inspiration to write about. But it's because, you know, it's had a profound effect on me. If something's moved me strongly, it'll end up in a song. And um, there is a different energy about singing something that you've walked through or you've seen someone you care about go through and you can absolutely relate. And, yeah, sometimes those things have 
come from my own pen and my own brain. And sometimes somebody else has penned an emotion and experience that I don't need to add to it or subtract from it or anything. I'll just sing it too because I know exactly how that feels. And that's how we all relate to music after mm. all. I'm just lucky that I can kind of vocalise it as well. <laughs> Was there ever a plan B when you were at uni studying? Do you think maybe this guy won't wait for me and I'll I'll do something else? Um, somehow I was knew I was going to end up doing music, mm. but but and there is always a but. Growing up, because I was this bookish, you know, academic child who always had my nose in the inner book, my dad thought that maybe I might be a good lawyer. Because mm-hmm. I was always argumentative. <laughs> <laughs> I always had something to say and I always had, ah, but what about if mm. I was one of those, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd drive my dad crazy for it, poor dad. I think he quite fancied me as being a lawyer. Mm. And maybe I harboured that idea for 10 seconds. You're <laughs> not going to be a lawyer. It's no. not going to, no, thank you. Was there a moment in your life though, Beverly, that there was a big kind of what if? I mean, obviously... Going to university, that was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. But was there ever a moment in your life where you were standing there and it, you felt as if you were at a crossroads and mm-hmm. there was one road could lead somewhere and the other one somewhere else and you just weren't sure of what way to yeah. go? Yeah, There's been two things that come to mind immediately. There was a programme on TV called Just the Two of Us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that. remember that? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was like... Strictly Come Singing. It was. Uh, that, it was. That was the premise of it. Yeah. So I remember being offered the job of, obviously, one of the singers, uh, one of the mentors. And this must have been, what, 2005? So this is a long time ago I now. Remember mm-hmm. it. I remember our Penny Smith that read the news Penny at GMTV. Penny Smith did it. She was paired up with Curtis Steigers. That's right. Steigers. And Penny sounded, I mean, it was horrific the sound and she wouldn't mind me saying that because she said it herself and they just went for fun they just laughed yeah yeah (laughs) she was a lot of fun she was really (laughs) Curtis Stigus was really nice oh lovely guy yeah smashing really nice it was a great Great idea for a show it It really really was was. and I remember it well yeah so I was offered this show and I was like oh just oh I don't think that's the right thing for me to do I'm not going to do it. I went to bed. I'm not going to do it. My record label were like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm not going to do it. My management at the time, are you sure? Yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I went to bed. I kid you not. Jesus again. (laughs) Somehow from somewhere, it was like a voice came to me and said, if you don't do this show, you're going to be missing out on a hell of an opportunity because it's going to help to shape the rest of your career. And I woke up in the morning, it's literally like a dream, like, mm. like um, oh my God, like Fiddler on the Roof, where the, the, the dead... Um, oh, I remember. You know, the, the, the nightmare that Topol has, <laughs> Topol, um, Reptevier yeah. has. And yeah, but it was literally like Reptevier's dream. And I woke up in the morning going, I've got to do the show. An angel has spoken to me. I've got to do this show. Mm. Got on the phone to management. I've changed my mind. They hadn't even listened to my no. They had done that la, 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 we're not listening. They were still holding on, thinking she's going to come round. I did the show. 
And I did two series. There was only two series. And you know what? I went from being this name that most people hadn't really heard of in the mainstream to everybody knew who I was, Mm. you know, because they'd seen me on this primetime show. Off the back of that, I had released then my affirmation album and that just went through the ceiling. I mean, it really, really did. And it was like, this really did shape my career. And then suddenly I started to get lots more TV offers, you know, to come and do interviews and what have you and sing on shows. And and it came down to that show. That was the moment. And I often think, what would have happened if I hadn't, if I just ignored that voice that I heard, you know, Mm -hmm. what would have happened? Where would my career have been? I'm sure I still would have been singing, but would I be doing what I'm doing right now? I don't think so. So fascinating, isn't it? That something really, you know, it just all comes together at the right time. Yeah, it was the right time for that to happen to you. It was you were kind of ready for that to happen. Everything else just really worked out. It really, really did. Gosh, and the the other big, big kind of crossroads moment, and it truly was a crossroads. And I know you'll know this because you were right there when this happened. I had turned 39. I just married my James and I had released my seventh album. Six albums, seven, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so many. Exactly. No, there's so many. So many. <laughs> I had left my label, it was my second label at the time, Parlophone Records. That had come to an end and it was 2012 But, you know, I'm kind of like, next year I'm going to be 40. Do I just release another album? I felt as though I'd plateaued. And I thought, I don't really know what I should do next. And people had all these different ideas. Oh, you should write a book. Oh, you should this. Oh, you should that. A few weeks later, this is nuts, but I swear this is what happened. I'm on Twitter. Twitter. (laughs) Flicking through the messages as you do. And somebody, I couldn't even tell you who it was, but somebody had written, oh, they're going to do a cast change for The Bodyguard. Heather Headley had starred in The Bodyguard. Hmm. Whitney had sadly passed away that year. And The Bodyguard had opened not long after Whitney's passing. And it was going along okay. But I think, you know, maybe because of Whitney's death and everything, it all just felt a little bit too awkward. So the show was doing okay and... I know Heather, multi-award winning American actress, had come over. She's in Britain in the winter. You know, she's not loving her life. (laughs) Bless. And wanted to go home. And the producers were like, "Okay, we're going to do a cast change. I happened to read a tweet saying there's going to be a cast change. And there was something inside of me that went, I know exactly who that Rachel Maron character is. Mm. I know her. I know the songs. I could do that. Hold on, that's musical theatre. Mm. What am I saying to myself? And then I spoke to James and said, what do you think? You know, what do you think I should do? And James was like, what do you mean, what do I think? You'd be mad not to grab this with both hands. You absolutely <laughs> should be doing this. You know, you are a performer. Former, you're a singer, you are an actress. Because I was doubting myself, thinking Mm. I haven't gone to RADA, I haven't done, you know, any of those stage school things, I haven't done any of that stuff. 
what do you know? I can't stand on a West End stage. Mm. He said, okay, name me someone who could sing those songs. Name me somebody else who could sing those songs and understands that life. And, you know, all the people I was naming were like from the, the US. Yeah. And, and it was like, but they're not here, Beth. They're not here. This could be your moment and who knows where it could lead to. So I thought, all right then, well, I know I haven't got the the CV that says, you know, Vrada, <laughs> Lambda, you know, I haven't done any of those grand things, but let's see. Luckily, my manager at the time um, had, you know, a community of friends who knew about theatre, so he knew all the steps. So I got to an audition and Thea Sharrock was the director and the producers, David Ian and Michael Harrison, were there as well. So they asked me if I'd sing a bit and then they gave me a bit of a scene to act out where I'm very hostile to poor old Frank Farmer. <laughs> a week later, I got the job. Wow. <laughs> but it was a triumph. But it was An a complete absolute triumph. triumph. It mm. really was. It was brilliant. And good for your James as well. Yeah. Just mm. bolstered in your confidence because I think we all need yeah. that in our lives, don't yeah. we? I mean, what if you didn't have him? He was, you know, do you, mm. know, do you sometimes think that? Because I sometimes think that, but what if we'd never met? You know, what if, you know, your partner, what if you'd never met them? Oh, how weird. Absolutely. <laughs> your, your life mm. would be so different. So different. That's a very bizarre story as well. Um, <laughs> I was shooting the TV advert for my album Music City Soul and it was a rubbish rainy day and, you know, you turn up to these things, you've got no makeup on or anything, you're rubbish clothes because you're going to be glammed when you get there. Yeah. So I bounce in through the door and all the crew are there and they're all doing what they're doing, getting ready for this TV commercial. I bounce in, morning, everyone, how are you? I'm quite annoyingly chirping. <laughs> and um, up this ladder, I see this very nice bum. And I'm kind of looking, thinking, very nice. Nice thing to see in the morning. And then the owner of said bum comes down the ladder and says, morning, and smiled. And I was like, Ugh. Who are you? Oh, my God. And all the way through hair and makeup, I was like, oh, my God, that guy. Who's that guy? Oh, how am I going to concentrate? That guy is so hot. And I just kept finding excuses to go over and talk to him. So in my chatting to him, I found out that he was single. Well done. And he <laughs> lived on his own, had his own flat and, and you know, all of these things. And, and he was called Jim. Everybody called him Jim. And we got through the commercial, don't know how. And uh, <laughs> end of the day, he went his way, I went mine. And I was like, yeah, that guy was really, really lovely. few weeks later, I was like, I wonder what happened to that guy. That guy was so lovely. I was in Le Mans with my friend watching the 24-hour racing. And my phone rings and it's a Saturday. I'm in the middle of the racing and I'm like, hello, what? Can't hear you over the cars. It's Jocelyn from EMI Records. It's like, what's EMI doing phoning me on a Saturday? This is my mm. record label. She was the video commissioner. She had just been on a video shoot with a, another EMI artist. And James, Jim, this guy Jim, had walked into the shoot. He wasn't on the shoot. He had nothing to do with it. He was on his way to a wedding. But his mate was part of the crew 
and he just popped in to see him. He walks in. You're that guy that Beverly Knight really fancied. Oh. I need your number. <laughs> we should and, all have friends like that. Right. <laughs> and Jim thought it was a complete wind-up and said, yeah, get it get it from, from Tony. Tony's his mate who he went to see. Get it from Tony and, and, and get her to give me a call. And so on this Saturday, it was Jocelyn saying, I've got that Jim's number. Do you want it? <gasps> and I was like, oh, this is like two months later. So I was like, go on then, go on then, I'll have the number. So I get the number. So I sent some absolutely rubbish pony text message. Hi, remember me? It's Beverly from the video shoot. Text back if you want to chat or some foolishness (laughs) like that. Nothing for two hours. I was like, I've done myself here. (laughs) Anyway, I didn't know that Jim was at this wedding, half cut, saw this text message and was like, is this one of the lads winding me up? Oh, no. <laughs> oh. So he had been like, it's got to be a wind-up. And they were like, well, it's not me. Well, it's not me. Well, it's not me. <gasps> it's real. So he had spent all this time trying to compose a message while half-cut, thinking, <laughs> what do I write back? So eventually, two hours later, I get a text message back. Oh, hi, let's talk. And... Text, 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 back, forth, back, forth. And then eventually Jim, James, said, would you like to meet up and go for a drink sometime? And honestly, I was like, yes, 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 (laughs) definitely. So a few weeks later, we went for a drink. James nearly left because he was waiting for me at the tube station and I was so busy trying to figure out what to wear that I'd missed the time that we were supposed to meet and I was like 20 minutes late and he was going to go. He was going to go. And then I realised I'd had all these missed calls and then saw the time was like, (gasps) called him back and eventually we had that date and now... 13 yeah. years later. 13 years. Now, do you, are um, you the only one that calls him James? Does everyone else call him Jim? Um, all his mates. Right. All his mates call him Jim. I call him James. My mum calls him James and his mum calls him James. But right. mm. talk about what ifs. I mean, there were so many what ifs. What if James hadn't popped in to see Tony on his way to the wedding? Yeah. What if Jocelyn hadn't? decided to say something um, when she saw him walk in. And what if James had just disappeared down the tube station? And that is bizarre. And we both laugh when we tell that story because we're like, it was absolutely meant to happen. It mm. totally must have been. With yeah. all of those things, just, you know, because of so many ways that it could have gone wrong. It could and have then gone it was yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was okay. Yeah. And he's great. He's always got your back. Hasn't he? he has. Yeah. I mean, we're a real double act. <laughs> we really are. We do everything together we make all our decisions together and he's always very honest he won't just tell me a load of flannel because he thinks it's what I want to hear he will be as real with me as it gets and I just value that I really do and and he you know helped me at that big crossroads of my life yeah because you never really thought you would get married did you no it was not something that was on your you know, a lot of a lot of people, men and women, a lot of people think, you know, well, one day I'll get married, mm-hmm. I'll sit down. It wasn't really something you'd thought about. Wasn't even it it was nothing to do with my life. That was somebody else's life. Somebody else's dream was marriage. Mine was I was happy as I was 
thank you very much. And, you know, I was just going to make music and just love my life being a musician. And, you know, my mum would sometimes, my sister was married, my brother was married. And um, my mum would sometimes look at me, you know, longingly, (laughs) hoping one day her child, her middle child, you know. But I was just like, not interested. And then when, I think within two weeks or so of being with James, like so, so, so early on being with James, I remember phoning mum and saying, mum, I think there's someone you really need to meet, like really need to meet. And mum was like, oh, really? (laughs) Oh, well, he's going to have to come to Wolverhampton. I'll cook something special. (laughs) And, you know, she went into full mode, mum and dad, you know. My dad was very kind of po-faced and hmm, let's see who you are then type thing. And my mum was all like quite swoony because she thought he looked like Warren Beatty, the actor. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's just funny because his heritage is Irish on his dad's side, but his mum is very English, very Englishy English, you Mm -hmm. know, smaller family coming into this rowdy West Indian, there's loads of us. And so James went from meeting my parents and my sister and brother and and the kids within a couple of weeks meeting everybody Mm. at my uncle's house for a barbecue. Poor James. (laughs) (laughs) He was just like... Were you ever worried about him, how he would sort of react? Or When I first met him, Mm. I was like... Yeah, I wonder how he's going to take, you know, just the the cultural thing is so mm. different. It's it's like the closest I can think of is, you know, that big Italian, mm-hmm. everybody yeah. just ropes you in and throws their arms around you and right. you're in. Oh, that made me my big fat. My big fat Greek wedding. We watched that recently. Yeah. It's so oh, funny. Yeah, exactly. When he like goes to the house for the Greek first wedding. time. Yeah. Exactly yeah. that. And I did think to myself, oh, well, James, sink or swim. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> But by, oh God, it didn't even take an hour. He was bantering with my uncles, back forth, back forth. They call him Jim Bob. And that was it. That was it. He was off. You know, I needn't have worried at all. Sometimes he'll be the life and soul and I'll be like, okay, I'll just, I'll take it easy. I'll swim must be good for you because everybody's always expecting, you know, so much from you because because you're an entertainer and they'd be expecting that. So it's actually actually quite nice for you to sit there and let someone else do the entertaining for a bit. It really is. He (laughs) tends to do that, especially at dinner parties. He's the one who will be the life and soul. Yeah. I like that. (laughs) Um, so we end each episode by getting guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret and win. Mm. So we can start with fail and then end on a high. My biggest fail. Oh, God, there's been a few fails. <laughs> <laughs> I failed pretty badly at understanding the importance of marketing myself and visuals and how important it is to have the appearance of a star and not just the raw vocal talent and Mm. songwriting ability of a star. I failed at that big time. I sucked, as the Americans say. (laughs) Was that because you weren't interested? I was. And this is the funny thing. I was interested in having that 
that look, that glow, that, you know, they call it the glow up these days. Yeah. I wanted all those things. I didn't know how to achieve it. And I didn't trust the people who were put in place to give me that, Mm. which is on me because they were great at their jobs. I was just resisting it all the time. I was so scared of being seen as a dolly bird chiclet, Mm. (laughs) you know, irrelevant. Yeah. What about regret? My big regret, um, I'm not sure I, even though I failed at at that, Mm -hmm. I then think, well, maybe the course of my career wouldn't have gone the way it did had I not sucked so badly at that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I tried my best to tell both Tyrone and my dad you know, how much I loved and appreciated them. But I don't think I realised, really realised that when they were going to leave this earth, they really actually were never coming back. Mm. I don't think I've really got that into my head. And I wish I could have had more of the life that I enjoy now to show them both, to say, look, look at what I did, look at what I've got. Tyrone especially, he would have lost his mind to see me in the bodyguard because he used to go out in drag mm-hmm. as Whitney. And he, was, <laughs> he had Whitney down, down, down. I wish he could have seen that. Mm. I mean, he'd have been in the theatre every night that I was on stage. Um, Probably hoping that you'd break a leg so that he could go on. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, totally. He was wonderful. Mm. Um, And that's a regret in a way. Um, It's just how life turns, Mm. you know. I hope both Dad and Tyrone know just how much they meant to me and how much they influenced my career. My dad gave me that drive and that ambition and Tyrone gave me the kick I needed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And your win? My biggest win is being here in my 27th year of making music and still having the trajectory going upwards. Yeah. That is my biggest win because I'm a black, British, female, desperately proud female artist who is still here, still with a career that people are interested in after 27 years Mm. and that really is a very rare thing and it's a thing of beauty and it's a thing to be celebrated and it's a thing which I hope many other people not just black not just female but can look at and say that's what a, a career that has longevity looks like I hope I can emulate that too I can because she did it Mm -hmm. that's a win that's the biggest win you can ever have amazing that's a huge win that was fabulous thank you so much much. oh Oh my god that was such a great chat that was just brilliant 